Part Four of Lorelei of the Red Mist by Lee Douglas Brackett and Ray Bradbury. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Four. Her face dimmed, and in its place was Crom de Hue, rising bleak into the red fog, the long ships broken and sunk in the harbor, and Ron's fleet around it in a shining circle. One ship in particular, the flagship. The vision in Stark's mind rushed toward it, narrowed down to the masthead platform, to the woman who stood there, naked, erect, her body lashed tight with thin, cruel cords. A woman with red hair blowing in the slow wind, and blue eyes that looked straight ahead like a falcon's, at Crom de Hue. Beodog. Ron's laughter ran across the picture and blurred it like a ripple of ice-cold water. "'You'd have done better,' she said, "'to take the clean steel when I offered it to you.' She was gone, and Stork's mind was as empty and cold as the mind of a corpse. He found that he was standing still, clinging to a branch, his face upturned as though by some blind instinct, his sight blurred. He had never cried before in all his life, nor prayed. There was no such thing as time down there in the smoky shadows of the sea-bottom. It might have been minutes or hours later that Hugh Stark discovered he was being hunted. There were three of them slipping easily among the shining branches. They were pale golden, almost phosphorescent, about the size of large hounds. Their eyes were huge, jewel-like in their slim, sharp faces. They possessed four members that might have been legs and arms, retracted now against their arrowing bodies. Golden membranes spread wing-like from head to flank, and they moved like wings, balancing expertly the thrust of the flat, powerful tails. They could have closed in on him easily, but they didn't seem to be in any hurry. Stark had sense enough not to wear himself out by trying to get away. He kept on going, watching them. He discovered that the crystal branches could be broken, and he selected himself one with a sharp forked tip, shoving it swordwise under his belt. He didn't suppose it would do much good, but it made him feel better. He wondered why the things didn't jump him and get it over with. They looked hungry enough, the way they were showing him their teeth but they kept about the same distance away in a sort of crescent formation, and every so often the ones on the outside would make a tentative dart at him, then fall back as he swerved away. It wasn't like being hunted so much as— Stark's eyes narrowed. He began suddenly to feel much more afraid than he had before, and he wouldn't have believed that possible. The things weren't hunting him at all they were hurting him. There was nothing he could do about it. He tried stopping, and they swooped in and snapped at him, working expertly together so that while he was trying to stab one of them with his clumsy weapon, the others were worrying his heels like sheep-dogs at a recalcitrant weather. Stark, like the weather, bowed to the inevitable and went where he was driven. 
The golden hounds showed their teeth in animal laughter and sniffed hungrily at the thread of blood he left behind him in the slow red coils of fire. After a while he heard the music. It seemed to be some sort of a harp, with a strange quality of vibration in the notes. It wasn't like anything he'd ever heard before. Perhaps the gas of which the sea was composed was an extraordinarily good conductor of sound, with a property of diffusion that made the music seem to come from everywhere at once. Softly at first, like something touched upon in a dream, and then, as he drew closer to the source, swelling into a racing, rippling flood of melody that wrapped itself around his nerves with a demoniac shiver of ecstasy. The golden hounds began to fret with excitement spreading their shining wings, driving him impatiently faster through the crystal branches. Stark could feel the vibration growing in him, the very fibers of his muscles shuddering in sympathy with the unearthly harp. He guessed there was a lot of the music he couldn't hear. Too high, too low for his ears to register, but he could feel it. He began to go faster, not because of the hounds, but because he wanted to. The deep quivering in his flesh excited him. He began to breathe harder, partly because of increased exertion, and some chemical quality of the mixture he breathed made him slightly drunk. The thrumming harp song stroked and stung him, waking a deeper, darker music. And suddenly he saw Bayudag clearly half-veiled and mystic in the candlelight at Faolan's dun. Smooth, curving bronze, her hair loose fire about her throat. A great stab of agony went through him. He called her name once, and the harp-song swept it up and away, and then suddenly there was no music any more, and no forest, and nothing but cold embers in Stark's heart. He could see everything quite clearly in the time it took him to float from the top of the last tree to the floor of the plain. He had no idea how long a time that was. It didn't matter. It was one of those moments when time doesn't have any meaning. The rim of the forest fell away in a long curve that melted glistening into the spark-shot sea. From it the plain stretched out a level, glassy floor of black obsidian, the spew of some long-dead volcano. Or was it dead? It seemed to Stark that the light here was redder, more vital, as though he were close to the source from which it sprang. As he looked farther over the plain, the light seemed to coalesce into a shimmering curtain that wavered like the heat veils that dance along the Mercurian twilight belt at high noon. For one brief instant he glimpsed a picture on the curtain, a city, black, shining, fantastically turreted, the gigantic reflection of a titan's dream. Then it was gone, and the immediate menace of the foreground took all of Stark's attention. He saw the flock, herded by more of the golden hounds, and he saw the shepherd with the harp held silent between his hands. The flock moved sluggishly, phosphorescently. One hundred, two hundred, silent, limply floating warriors drifting down the red dimness. In pairs, singly or in pallid clusters they came. 
The golden hounds winged silently, leisurely among them, channeling them in tides that sluiced toward the fantastic ebon city. The shepherd stood, a crop of obsidian, turning his sharp pale face. His sharp aquamarine eyes found Stark. His silvery hand leapt beckoningly over hard threads, striking them a blow. Reverberations rang out, seized Stark, shook him. He dropped his crystal dagger. Hot screens of fire exploded in his eyes. Bubbles whirled and danced in his eardrums. He lost all muscular control. His dark head fell forward against the thick blackness of hair on his chest. His golden eyes dissolved into weak, inane yellow, and his mouth loosened. He wanted to fight, but it was useless. This shepherd was one of the sea people he had come to see, and, one way or another, he would see him. Dark blood filled his aching eyes. He felt himself led, nudged, forced first this way, then that. A golden hound slipped by, gave him a pressure which roiled him over into a current of sea-blood. It ran down past where the shepherd stood with only a harp for a weapon. Stark wondered dimly whether these other warriors in the flock, drifting, were dead or alive like himself. He had another surprise coming. They were all Ron's men, men of Falga. Silver men with burning green hair. Ron's men. One of them, a huge warrior, colored like powdered salt, wandered aimlessly by on another tide, his green eyes dull. He looked dead. What business had the sea people with the dead warriors of Falga? Why the hounds and the shepherd's harp? Questions eddied like lifted silt in Stark's tired hanging head. Eddied? and settled flat. Stark joined the pilgrimage. The hounds, with deft flickerings of wings, ushered him into the midst of the flock. Bodies brushed against him. Cold bodies. He wanted to cry out. The cords of his neck constricted. In his mind the cry went forward. Are you alive, men of Falga? No answer, but the drift of scarred, pale bodies. The eyes in them knew nothing. They had forgotten Falga. They had forgotten Ron for whom they had lifted blade. Their tongues lolling and mouths asked nothing but sleep. They were getting it. A hundred, two hundred strong, they made a strange human river slipping toward the gigantic city wall. Stark called Conan and his bitter enemies going together. From the corners of his eyes Stark saw the shepherd move. The shepherd was like Ron and her people who had years ago abandoned the sea to live on land. The shepherd seemed colder, more fish-like, though. There were small translucent webs between the thin fingers and spanning the long-toed feet. Thin, scar-like gills in the shadow of his tapered chin, lifted and sealed in the current, eating taking sustenance from the blood-colored sea. The harp spoke, and the golden hounds obeyed. The harp spoke, and the bodies twisted uneasily as in a troubled sleep. A triple cord of it came straight at Stark. His fingers clenched. 
and the dead shall walk again. Another ironic ripple of music. And Ron's men will rise again, this time against her. Stark had time to feel a brief, bewildered shivering before the current hurled him forward. Clamoring drunkenly, witlessly, all about him, the dead, muscleless warriors of Falga tried to crush past him, all of them at once. Long ago some vast sea-titan had dreamed of avenues struck from black stone, each stone the size of three men tall. There had been a dream of walls going up and up until they dissolved into scarlet mist. There had been another dream of sea-gardens in which fish hung like erotic flowers on tendrils of sensitive film tissue. Whole beds of fish clung to garden base, like colonies of flowers aglow with sunlight. And on occasion a black amoebic presence filtered by, playing the gardener, weeding out an amber flower here, an amethystine bloom there. And the sea-titan had dreamed of endless balustrades and battlements, of windowless turrets where creatures swayed like radium-skinned phantoms carrying their green plumes of hair in their lifted palms, and looked down with curious, insolent eyes from on high. Women with shimmering bodies like some incredible coral harvested and kept high over these black stone streets, each in its archway. Stark was alone. Falga's warriors had gone off along a dim subterranean vent, vanished. Now the faint beckoning of harp and the golden hounds behind him, turned him down a passage that opened out into a large circular stone room, one end of which was opened out into a hall. Around the ebon ceiling slender schools of fish swam. It was their bright effulgence that gave light to the room. They had been there, breeding, eating, dying, a thousand years, giving light to the place as they would be there, breeding and dying, a thousand more. The harp faded until it was only a murmur. Stark found his feet. Strength returned to him. He was able to see the man in the center of the room well. Too well. The man hung in the fire-tide. Chains of wrought bronze held his thin, fleshless ankles so he couldn't escape. His body desired it. It floated up. It had been dead a long time. It was gaseous with decomposition, and it wanted to rise to the surface of the Red Sea. The chains prevented this. Its arms weaved like white scarves before a sunken white face. Black hair trembled on end. He was one of Faolon's men, one of the rovers one of those who had gone down at Falga because of Conan. His name was Giel. Stark remembered. The part of him that was Conan remembered the name. The dead lips moved. Conan! What luck is this? Conan, I make you welcome! The words were cruel, the lips around them loose and dead. It seemed to Stark an anger and embittered wrath lay deep in those hollow eyes. The lips twitched again. I went down at Falga for you and Ron, Conan, remember? 
part of Stark remembered and twisted in agony. We're all here, Conan. All of us. Clev and Mont and Bronn and Aesir. Remember Aesir, who could shape metal over his spine, plying it with his fingers? Aesir is here, big as a sea monster, waiting in a niche, cold and loose as string. The sea shepherds collected us, collected us for a purpose of irony. Look. The pointless fingers hung out as in a wind pointing. Stark turned slowly, and his heart pounded an uneven, shattering drumbeat. His jaw clenched and his eyes blurred. That part of him that was Conan cried out. Conan was so much of him, and he so much of Conan, it was impossible for a cleavage. They groaned together like pearl material around sand specule, layer on layer. Stark cried out. In the hall, which this circular room overlooked, stood a thousand men. In lines of fifty across, shoulder to shoulder, the men of Crom de Hue stared unseeingly up at Stark. Here and there a face became shockingly familiar. Old memory cried their names. Bronn, Clev, Mont, Aesir. The collected decomposition of their bodily fluids raised them, drifted them above the flaggings. Each of them was chained like Giel. Giel whispered, We have made a union with the men of Falga. Stark pulled back. Falga! In death all men are equals. He took his time with it. He was in no hurry. Dead bodies under sea are never in a hurry. They sort of bump and drift and bide their time. The dead serve those who give them a semblance of life. Tomorrow we march against Crom de Hue. You're crazy. Crom de Hue is your home. It's the place of Beudog and Faulon. And, interrupted the hanging corpse quietly, Conan... A he laughed. A crystal dribble of bubbles ran up from the slack mouth. Especially Conan. Conan, who sank us at Falga. Stark moved swiftly. Nobody stopped him. He had the corpse's short blade in an instant. Giel's chest made a cold, silent sheath for it. The blade went like a fork through butter. Coldly, without noticing this, Giel's voice spoke out. Stab me, cut me. You can't kill me any deader. Make sections of me, play butcher, a flank, a hand, a heart. And while you're at it, I'll tell you the plan. Snarling, Stark seized the blade out again. With blind violence he gave sharp blow after blow at the body, cursing bitterly and the body took each blow, rocking in the red tide a little, and said with a matter-of-fact tone, We'll march out of the sea to Crom de Hue's gates. Romna and the others, looking down, recognizing us, will have the gates thrown wide to welcome us. The head tilted lazily, the lips peeled wide and folded down languidly over the words. Think of the elation, Conan, 
the moment when Bran and Mont and Aesir and I and yourself, yes, even yourself, Conan, returned to Crom de Hugh. Stark saw it vividly, saw it like a tapestry woven for him. He stood back, gasping for breath, his nostrils flaring, seeing what his blade had done to Giel's body, and seeing the great stone gates of Crom de Hugh crashing open. The deliberation, the happiness, the elation to Faulon and Romna to see old friends returned, old rovers long thought dead, alive again, come to help. It made a picture. With great deliberation, Stork struck flat across before him. Giel's head, severed from its lazy body, began, with infinite tiredness, to float toward the ceiling. As it traveled upward, now facing, now bobbing the back of its skull toward Stark, it finished its nightmare speaking. And then, once inside the gates, what then, Conan? Can you guess? Can you guess what we'll do, Conan? Stark stared at nothingness, the sword trembling in his fist. From far away he heard Giel's voice. We will kill Faulan in his hall. He will die with surprised lips. Romna's harp will lie in his disemboweled stomach. His heart with its last pulsings will sound the strings. And as for Beudad, Stark tried to push the thoughts away, raging and helpless. Gil's body was no longer anything to look at. He had done all he could to it. Stark's face was bleached white and scraped down to the insane bone of it. You'd kill your own people! Gil's separated head lingered at the ceiling, light fish illuminating its ghastly features. Our people? But we have no people. We're another race now. The dead. We do the biddings of the sea shepherds. Stark looked out into the hall, then he looked at the circular wall. Okay, he said without tone in his voice. Come out, or ever you're hiding and using this voice-throwing act. Come on out and talk straight. In answer, an entire section of ebon stones fell back on silent hingework. Stark saw a long, slender black marble table. Six people sat behind it in carven midnight thrones. They were all men, naked except for film-like garments about their loins. They looked at Stark with no particular hatred or curiosity. One of them cradled a harp. It was the shepherd who'd drawn Stark through the gate. Amusedly, his webbed fingers lay on the strings, now and then bringing out a clear sound from one of the two hundred strands. The shepherd stopped Stark's rush forward with a cry of that harp. The blade in his hand was red-hot. He dropped it. The shepherd put a head on the story. And then? And then we will march Ron's dead warriors all the way to Falga. There... Ron's people, seeing the warriors, will be overjoyed, hysterical, to find their friends and relatives returned. They, too, will fling wide Falga's defenses, and death will walk in disguised as resurrection. Stark nodded, 
slowly wiping his hand across his cheek. Back on Earth we call that psychology. Good psychology. But will it fool Ron? Ron will be with her ships at Crom de Hue. While she's gone, the innocent population will let in their lost warriors gladly. The shepherd had amused green eyes. He looked like a youth of some seventeen years. Deceptively young. If Stark guessed right, the youth was nearer to two centuries old. That's how you lived and looked when you were under the Red Sea. Something about the emanations of it kept part of you young. Stark lidded his yellow hawk's eyes thoughtfully. You've got all the aces. You'll win. But what's Crom de Hugh to you? Why not just Ron? She's one of you. You hate her more than you do the rovers. Her ancestors came up on land. You never got over hating them for that. The shepherd shrugged. Toward Crom de Hugh we have little actual hatred, except that they are by nature landmen, even if they do rove by boat and pillagers. One day they might try their luck on the sunken devices of this city. Stark put a hand out. We're fighting Ron, too. Don't forget, we're on your side. Whereas we are on no one's, retorted the green-haired youth, except our own. Welcome to the army which will attack Crom de Hugh. Me? By the gods, over my dead body. That, said the youth amusedly, is what we intend. We've worked many years, you see, to perfect the plan. We're not much good out on land. We needed bodies that could do the work for us. So every time Faulon lost a ship or Ron lost a ship, we were there with our golden hounds, waiting, collecting, saving, waiting until we had enough of each side's warriors. They'll do the fighting for us. Oh, not for long, of course. The source energy will give them a semblance of life, a momentary electrical ability of walk and combat, but once out of water they'll last only half an hour. But that should be time enough once the gates of Crom de Hugh and Falga are open. Stark said, Ron will find some way around you. Get her first. Attack Crom de Hugh the following day. The youth deliberated. You're stalling, but there's sense in it. Ron is most important. We'll get Falga first, then. You'll have a bit of time in which to raise false hopes. Stark began to get sick again. The room swam. Very quietly, very easily, Ron came into his mind again. He felt her glide in like the merest touch of a sea-fern weaving in a tide-pool. He closed his mind down, but not before she snatched at a thread of thought. Her aquamarine eyes reflected desire and inquiry. "'Hugh Stark, you're with the sea-people?' Her voice was soft. He shook his head. "'Tell me, Hugh Stark, how are you plotting against Falga?' He said nothing. He thought nothing. He shut his eyes. Her fingernails glittered, raking at his mind. Tell me! 
his thoughts rolled tightly into a metal sphere which nothing could dent. Ron laughed unpleasantly and leaned forward until she filled every dark horizon of his skull with her shimmering body. All right. I gave you Conan's body. Now I'll take it away. She struck him a combined blow of her eyes, her writhing lips, her bone-sharp teeth. Go back to your old body. Go back to your old body, Hugh Stark, she hissed. Go back. Leave Conan to his idiocy. Go back to your old body. Fear had him. He fell down upon his face, quivering and jerking. You could fight a man with a sword, but how could you fight this thing in your brain? He began to suck sobbing breaths through his lips. He was screaming. He could not hear himself. Her voice rushed in from the dim outer red universe, destroying him. Hugh Stark, go back to your old body. His old body was dead, and she was sending him back into it. Part of him shot in-wise through red fog. He lay on a mountain plateau overlooking the harbor of Falga. Red fog coiled and snaked around him. Flame birds dived eerily down at his staring blind eyes. His old body held him. Putrefaction stuffed his nostrils. The flesh sagged and slipped greasily on his loosened structure. He felt small again and ugly. Flame birds nibbled, picking, choosing between his ribs. Pain gorged him. Cold blackness, nothingness filled him. Back in his old body forever. He didn't want that. The plateau, the red fog vanished, the flame birds too. He lay once more on the floor of the Sea Shepherds, struggling. That was just a start, Ron told him. Next time I'll leave you up there on the plateau in that body. Now will you tell the plans of the Sea People and go on living in Conan? He's yours if you tell, she smirked. You don't want to be dead. Stark tried to reason it out. Any way he turned was the wrong way. He grunted out of breath. If I tell, you'll still kill Beodog. Her life in exchange for what you know, Hugh Stark. Her answer was too swift. It had the sound of treachery. Stark did not believe. He would die. That would solve it. Then at least Ron would die when the Sea People carried out their strategy. That much revenge at least, debit. Then he got an idea. End of Part 4